Welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. As a community of faith, we are passionate about helping people find and follow Jesus. And would you turn me to Acts chapter 21? And we're going to continue our study today uh, through the book of Acts. I am going to have you look up a few passages. I don't have everything on the screen today. Um, But I'm excited to continue the journey that we've been on with uh, the Apostle Paul today. I don't have any uh, funny stories or anything to make you cry or happy. We're just going to get right into the word, okay? No no interesting openings. Just get right into it. Uh, I'm glad you're here. Thanks for those of you that are watching online today. Um, But uh, I'm excited to share with you uh, what God has been doing. If you remember where we picked up last week as we've been walking through the book of Acts. Uh, The Apostle Paul is almost to Jerusalem. He's almost to Jerusalem. And if you'll remember back to last week's message, what we talked about the most was the fact that the Apostle Paul, though he knew that God was leading him to Jerusalem, though he knew he was supposed to be uh, there in Jerusalem, there were some very good people in his life, some people that were very close to him that were warning him and saying, listen, we don't think that you should go. Now, remember, the Holy Spirit had told Paul that there was going to be some difficulties ahead. He knew there would be imprisonment. He knew that there was going to be a sorrow ahead of him in Jerusalem. And while he knew it, others knew it. There had been prophecies about it. And they had been warning him, please don't go. Please don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul uh, said this in his heart. He would not allow and he he was not unconvinced that the certainty ahead was worthy of his disobedience of the will of God for his life. In other words, uh, just because it was uncertain, just because the will of God was not what he thought it should be, he didn't, wasn't going to stop him from following the will of God. He made it very clear uh, when he spoke to Philip the evangelist and to Agabus, remember the prophet, when he said in verse 13 of 21, he said, what mean you to weep and break my heart? He says, I am ready not to be bound only, but to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. What a powerful statement. He said, listen, I know there's difficulty, but I am willing to not only be bound and to be tied up as Agabus had done and showed him. He says, but I'm willing to die for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was convinced, thoroughly convinced. I don't think you could change his mind in any way that the Holy Spirit, that God was leading him and he needed to go to Jerusalem. And I want to stop just at the very beginning of the message and say this to you as a church family. Listen, uh, that's the same heart that we should have when it comes to the will of God. We should have that same determination uh, that whatever God calls us to do, I am steadfast, I am committed, I'm going to follow the Lord, even if it doesn't match up with my plans, and even if it doesn't match up with my dreams for my future. And that's how we often speak, right? We're like, these are my dreams, this is my future. Listen, if God's created you and he's given you new life, you are his, and, uh, and your, your uh, uh, desire of your heart should be to follow the Lord. And so that's the, the, the attitude that we've got to have when it comes to following Jesus is that we're going to continue on. And I would, I would challenge you with this. I know that many of you have made that commitment at some point in your life. Uh, whether it's been here in church or whether it was maybe at a youth camp or, or some sort of other meeting where you determined, you said, God, I, I want to follow you. I want to I serve you. I want to pursue your will for your life. And maybe some of you have never done that. That's one of the greatest places to start in the Christian life is to be reminded of our desire to follow after the will of God. And so Paul, uh, he does that and he's, and he's uh, determined that he's going to do it. But today as we continue with him on this uh, historical narrative, we're going to be with Paul and those first events as he arrives there uh, in Jerusalem. And as he arrives, I want you to put yourself in his shoes. You got to think about the excitement that he would have felt as he made that 100 kilometer journey from Caesarea down into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, uh, was a uh, place that was very familiar to him. It was a place uh, that uh, that he had come from. He had learned a lot. But as we see in verse number 16 of uh, chapter uh, verse 21, I want to skip down and look at that real quickly. Verse 16, it says, and there went with us also certain of the disciples of Caesarea. Do you see it there at the very beginning? 
So Paul's on his way to Jerusalem. God has led him there. But what we see is not only are his traveling companions with him, but we see that there are some disciples that are going along with him from Caesarea. You say, well, why is that important? Here's, here's why I feel it's important. Because these people knew about the dangers ahead, didn't they? They knew just as well as Paul. They knew that he was going to face difficulty. They knew that just being associated with Paul, it could mean their own uh, difficulties and their own imprisonment. But yet we see people going along with Paul as he follows the will of God into Jerusalem. And I want us to get uh, this morning that we must never underestimate the power of your faith in somebody else's life. We must never underestimate the power of your faith in somebody else's life. See, Paul knew uh, that God had called him, and because he was willing to follow God no matter what, it inspired others to go along with him. See, so many Christians today are Christians by, uh, or they have faith by proxy. You understand that concept? Uh, faith by proxy. Uh, let somebody else do it, you know? Uh, they'll go on my behalf. Or, or in this sense, somebody, uh, they, they won't necessarily take a step of faith for God themselves, but when they see somebody else take a step of faith, that will encourage them to move along in that, in that decision as well. And so for us, we must never underestimate the power of our own faith. Your faith can, and it will influence somebody just as much as your lack of faith can influence somebody. All of us have been discouraged by others' lack of faith, haven't we? And we're like, come on, like you need to get this. It's been discouraging. In the same way, we can encourage others and lead them by our own faith. And that's what I believe was going on here with Paul. He said, I'm going to go no matter what's going to come my way. And others said, I'm going to go along too. I, I want to support him. I want to see what God's going to do uh, in his life. Well, we go back to verse number 16. And there were certain of the disciples of Caesarea traveling with them and uh, brought with them one Mason of Cyprus, an old disciple with whom we should lodge. And when we were come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us, say that word with me, gladly. No, you didn't say it with me. Say it with me, gladly, all right? They received him gladly. So they finally arrive in Jerusalem. How exciting would this have been for the Apostle Paul? I mean, this was, uh, he grew up, uh, uh, much of his life was, was, was here. Uh, his education was here. I mean, he learned so much uh, there in Jerusalem. And, and besides that fact, it was, of course, where his Savior had given his life for him. Where he would have been, he could have seen just across the valley, uh, the mount where Jesus had ascended back up into heaven. And so he had been gone for years. And so for him to return, just imagine that great feeling that would have come over his heart and over his life. It's like when you go home uh, for the first time in a while. Like, I grew up here in Vancouver, so this is home for me. But there's certain neighborhoods where I grew up as I drive through it, you know, and I I tell my boys that's where my old house used to be before it was torn down and you know another house was built in its place and this is where I used to ride my skateboard you know down the hill at crazy speeds and this is where I endangered my brother's life and I you know I share all these things and this is where I'd go and uh, down at the golf course and I'd hide in the woods and take golf balls that I could find out in the woods and then this is where I'd go to the river and this is where I'd hit those golf balls into the river with a baseball bat and okay I did a lot of stuff like that I had a good childhood and uh, and I would explain this to them and and of course they're like all right whatever dad it's not that big of a deal but you know that feeling when you kind of maybe drive through that neighborhood or maybe you go back to maybe where you grew up or that home you grew up in and just that feeling. And think about that for Paul as he got to Jerusalem. Like, man, I'm back. This is exciting. And then to add to that, it says that the people there received him gladly. We know about this old disciple named Mason, right? Uh, now, old doesn't necessarily mean that he was super decrepit and ancient, uh, but it does mean that he was one of the early disciples. He was one of the early ones who followed Christ. Maybe he followed Christ while Christ was there in Jerusalem. But he was someone who had experience. He was someone who'd been around, and he was hospitable to those that traveled there. They were able to stay with him. Well, Paul is in Jerusalem, and now he's going to meet with James, the pastor of the church, and the elders of that church in Jerusalem. 
That church uh, through the years, of course, it had been under great persecution, if you remember. Many people had scattered, especially around the time of Stephen and Paul's own persecution. But now the church had grown and grown. In a moment, we'll see how it was tens of thousands uh, uh, size. It was a massive church, a mega church, but it was still led. It had uh, led by elders. They had many elders that led that church, but it was also led by James, the half-brother of Jesus. Remember, his nickname was Old Camel Knees. Remember that? And uh, they called him that because his knees from prayer were hardened and worn out. I think that's a great nickname for your pastor, you know? What church you go to? Oh, you know, my pastor's Old Camel Knees. That's right. No, okay. <laughs> Hopefully, <laughs> never mind. We'll leave it there. But man, what, imagine uh, that, that, that Paul then was going to meet with James, and it would have been a wonderful, wonderful thing. He would have been exciting, uh, excited about it. Well, a lot is about to happen over the next 53 verses that we're going to cover today. I hope you're ready. Buckle up, buttercup. Here we go. We're going to cover a lot of ground. And, uh, and so uh, the reason I say that is because we're going to move kind of quickly, but we're going to cover a lot of ground. And because of that, I've divided up our, our situation, or I divided up our passage today into four different sections that will help us follow along and help us to uh, uh, um, sort of get in our minds and memorize and know where we're going with it. And of course, we'll find some application along the way. So point number one, I want you to look at, first of all, the vow. I want you to see the vow, point number one. Let's look at verse number 18 of Acts 21. And the day following, Paul went in with us unto James and all the elders were present. Some people believe there might have been 70 to reflect the Sanhedrin. There's still a lot of Jewish culture there. There could have been upwards of 100 or more, definitely. But it says, and when he had saluted them, uh, he declared particularly what things God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. And when they heard it, say it with me, they glorified the Lord. They glorify the Lord. You know, as Paul met uh, there with James and with all of those elders, which could have been possibly, uh, like I mentioned, about a hundred or so, he came and he shared with them all that God had done, all that he had done among the Gentiles. And I want you to notice that Paul did not take any credit here. He didn't say, I want you to know everything that I did, uh, everything that I followed and everything that I accomplished. He said simply, I want you to know what God has done among the Gentiles. And so uh, that's, uh, that is what, they, uh, what he did and he talked about it. And I always wonder what story he decided to share with them. You know, I wonder which one he decided to tell. I'm sure he told them about the, the Macedonian call. Don't you think? Come over into Macedonia and help us. Uh, that vision that he had. And I imagine that he probably uh, uh, told them that story. I'm sure he told them about uh, other people that had come to know the Lord uh, places, uh, in places like Philippi. I'm sure he talked about Thessalonica and all the great things that happened there. I'm sure he talked about Berea and how those believers there, they searched the scriptures to know if what I was saying was true. And I'm sure he talked about uh, what had happened in Athens and, and in Corinth. And as he told the story of him being at Mars Hill, they would have been amazed. You stood on Mars Hill and preached the gospel. Yes. And he told them these stories. And of course, then in Ephesus, the two and a half years he spent there training people that went out and planted churches all around uh, the known world. Maybe he presented to them some of the believers that he brought with them. We'll see in a minute, minute that he had a guy named Trophimus from Ephesus. He had another guy named Secundus. I think that's a cool name, Secundus. And they brought him, and he was from Thessalonica. Maybe he brought him in and said, hey, here are these two guys. Here's Trophimus. Here's Secundus. Great guys. They know the Lord. And maybe they greeted him, and he, and he said, they've traveled with me, and they've been a blessing. And it says that they rejoice, and they praise the Lord. I think he also brought them that offering at that time. If you remember, he's been collecting an offering in Galatia and Asia Minor in uh, Macedonia. And I, he, so he had a lot of money with him, and he would have presented 
presented it then to the church there in Jerusalem and how encouraging that would have been to them. You always say, well, they probably just praising the Lord because of the money. No, I don't think so. I think they're praising the Lord uh, because, of, uh, because of what God had been doing among the Gentiles. But what we see happen next, though, is that there's a little bit of a change than that takes place in the room. Paul, Paul would have been excited. I, I think he would have been like, man, this is going really good, you know? But then the, the room just sort of changes. Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you've been at like at somebody's house, you know, and then the tone of the whole day just changes. You know, maybe from negative to positive or positive to negative, you know. Or, or maybe you've been in those situations where this happens sometimes and you're like all, and there's like maybe 20 people. Everybody's talking, remember before COVID, everybody's in the room talking, you know, and hanging out. And, uh, and then just all of a sudden, everyone's conversation all stops at the exact same time. You know, it's like this weird, awkward, and you're just like, I'm the one who's always like, well, that was weird. And everyone stopped talking, you know, and kind of pick it up again. But something changed in the room. They were glorifying God. They were praising God. But then we come to verse number 20. It says, when they heard it, they glorified God. But then look what they said and said unto him, thou seest, brother, how many thousands of Jews. Now that word there, thousands, is a word that's thousands upon thousands. It's the idea of multiple over and over again. It's also the same word that's used often when it talks of tens of thousands. So this was a lot of people. He says, you see his brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe, and they are all zealous of the law. And they are informed of thee that thou teachest all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses. Now, here's some key things that he's saying here. He's saying, you are telling them to forsake Moses. To say that to a Jew is like, <clears throat> that's the worst thing that you can say. One of the worst things, that the law of Moses should be forsaken. So they're accusing Paul right here saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither walk after the customs. That's the law. Verse 22 says, what is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together for they will hear that thou art come. I think the conversation uh, maybe went a little bit like this with the apostle Paul. They say, they said, Paul, listen, your work has been commendable. Uh, Paul, you've, uh, you've done a great job among the Gentiles, uh, but you got to remember, Paul, that here in Jerusalem, this is a Jewish city. This is a city that still holds and our church still has uh, the Jewish law as a part of what we do. And he said, we've heard, we've heard that while you are out in these Gentile cities that you have told people uh, that they are, uh, that they're not to follow after the law, that they're to forsake the law of Moses. You've said essentially that the laws of Moses are worthless. Well, you can see, Paul, the impact this would have on us. Maybe as James spoke to them, you can see that uh, how, how frustrating this would be to us. It's very disturbing. So tell us what is really going on here, Paul. We've heard these things. Tell us what is going on. We need to know because the word's going to get out that you're here in Jerusalem. And I'll tell you what, it's almost like a veiled threat. They're going to find out you're here and they're not going to be very happy about the kind of things that you've been doing. So Paul, where do you stand in this? Now, I think this would have come as a blow to Paul. He go from, they go from uh, praising the Lord and thanking God over all the wonderful things that have happened, right? And then they're like, but we've heard this about you. And, and to me, when you look at it, this is very sad. This is very sad. Because what it reveals to us is that this Jerusalem church was still struggling with overcoming the legalism of the Jewish faith. Yes, they believed in Jesus. Yes, they believed in the Messiah, but they still had a lot of this legalism from the law that they were still implementing and adding into uh, their faith. Even though the Jerusalem council had happened back in, in Acts chapter 15, where they said, you know, the, the Gentiles don't have to keep this. When it came to the Jewish church, the Jerusalem church, they said, this is still a big deal. We need the law to be a part of every believer's life. And so you cannot speak against the law at all in any way. And, and then to me, the, to add to the disappointment, the fact that these guys were 
basically accusing Paul based off of rumors that they had heard. I mean, they took rumors as fact. Now, that's the, that's the worst. You ever have someone do that to you? I heard a little birdie told me, right? That's the common phrase. And you're like, why are you believing this rumor? By the way, I'll say this. Anytime there's rumors about church leadership and rumors, okay, that you hear kind of scuttlebutt around, you better verify that before you take an action on it. You better verify that because we know we have an enemy, an adversary that desires to sift us like wheat, the Bible says. It desires, desires to destroy us, to break us apart. And so you need to be aware of rumors that creep in uh, to, uh, to your life or within people. And I would call people on it. If somebody says, I heard, just, oh yeah, let's go and find out. That's the Bible thing to do, right? Let's go and talk to them. Let's find out about it. But so Paul, they're, they're accusing him with these lies. That's what they were, that, that they were making him as, as if this was what it was. And Paul, I'm sure, was frustrated. But before he can give an answer for himself, the elders continue to propose something. And to me, as I look at what we're going to see, it's hypocritical at best. Look at verse 23. They said this, do therefore this that we say to these. You better do what we say is what they're saying. <laughs> we have four men which have a vow on them. Now, that would have been the Nazarite vow. Just so you know, Nazarite vow was something that you willingly took upon yourself. It was not legislated. It was something that you chose to do. You would abstain from certain things. You wouldn't cut your hair uh, for a certain amount of time. And then there would be a day of purification when you completed your vow. Remember, Paul took a vow like this that he had just completed in Centuria not all that long ago. Okay? So this is, this is a common thing or this is a normal thing, I guess. But then they said this, we have four men which have a vow on them. And that's kind of interesting. And he's like, okay, great. Verse 24. Them take and purify thyself with them and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads and all may know that those things whereof they were informed concerning thee are nothing, but that thou thyself also walketh orderly and keepeth the law as such in the Gentiles which believe. And then they repeat here that the Gentiles do not have to observe these kind of things, save only that they keep themselves from things offered to idols and from blood and from strangled and from fornication. So, so they kind of tag that on at the end. So they say, Paul... Uh, you need to go and you need to meet these uh, four men. And what we need you to do is you need to go and you need to pick up the tab for these four guys and you need to go and walk with them through their days of purification. Now, this uh, was not just a, a small thing. Now, remember, this was a, a Jewish thing, had nothing to do with salvation, but they said to prove to us that you still love the law, you need to go and help these four men out. Out of your own pocket, you need to pay for their sacrifices. Now, the, the, the sacrifice of purification was three animals per person. Plus, there was a cereal, they call it a cereal, uh, a cereal and a drink offering as well that had to take place uh, as part of the purification as well as shaving their heads, you know? And so they said, Paul, we want you to go and do this and pick up the tab. That, that's going to be a lot of money. That's going to be a lot of money, you know, to, to pay for an animal worthy of sacrifice. And Paul, we want you to do this to prove to us that you still love the law. We will be happy then if you do this. To me, it's like a veiled threat. And then if you do this, then I won't, I won't be angry anymore. That's what they say. Verse 26. Look at Paul's response. Then Paul took the men and the next day, purifying himself with them, entered into the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until that an offering should be offered for every one of them. Now, now this action right here by Paul is raises a lot of questions, doesn't it? It does. It raises some questions because this is Paul who so strongly, I mean, strongly proclaims salvation uh, through uh, faith alone or grace alone through faith alone, isn't it? This is Paul. I mean, this is Paul who said, listen, the law, is, uh, the, the law is not what justifies you. You are not justified by the deeds of the law. You're justified by faith. But here we see Paul out of his own pocket paying for and participating in this uh, vow and, and the restitution of this vow. So why doesn't he resist this at all? Why is that? Why isn't Paul like, no, I'm not doing that. 
<laughs> why, why does he say, what are you talking about? You think I have the kind of money to do this? By the way, he must have had some money saved up. He could handle it. It's a good thing to save, right, in case something comes up. And uh, deep scriptural principle here. <laughs> he was ready to do it. And, uh, and, and why did he not resist? Well, here's what it does. It goes back to Paul's incredible love for the Jewish people. Man, Paul had a love for the Jewish people. He had such a desire that they would be saved. Later on, he said that he wishes that he could give up his own salvation, which he couldn't, he says, I wish I could give up my own salvation so that my Jewish uh, brothers and sisters would come to know the Lord. I mean, that, that shows the passion right there. I mean, how many of us have ever considered giving up our own salvation so that somebody else could be saved? And that's what he did. He said, I desire this so much that, that, that uh, they would uh, know Jesus Christ. And so for him, he was willing then to humble himself. He was willing to uh, put his own personal liberty aside in order to have the opportunity to preach Jesus Christ. And so if it meant him paying for these guys, then he was totally fine uh, with doing that. In fact, it goes right along with his own stated policy. If you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, he said, for though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews, I became as a Jew that I might gain the Jews to them that are under the law as under the law. Meaning I put myself as if I'm under the law uh, that I might gain them that are under the law. Then in verse 22, he said to the weak became I as weak that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men that I might by all means save some. And this I do. Here's the key. I do it for the gospel's sake that I might be partaker thereof with you. At his core, he wanted the Jews to know Jesus Christ. And so he said, if that means that uh, I have to just... um, uh, stop, uh, or I, that I have to do this thing for them, then I will put myself in that position. I will become as if I, I follow the law in order to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what it all comes down to, his heart and his passion for people. Now, now this passage sometimes is misunderstood, right? And I've heard people, you know, uh, they'll use it as a reason to sin, right? So I'm going to sin so then I can be like these people, right? So, I mean, every weekend I'm going to get wasted with my friends because I want them to know I'm just like them so I can tell them about Jesus. No, no, that's not what he's talking about here. Paul was not sinning. You understand that, right? Paul was not sinning here. He was simply humbling himself to something in order to reach these people, but it did not violate the word of God and it did not violate his conscience at all whatsoever. So we have to keep that in mind when we consider this fact that we're not just to, you know, put ourselves in sinful positions in, because, well, I become all men to all people, you know, therefore I can reach them. Understand it in its context of what it is, but that's what Paul is doing here. He was willing and humbling himself to reach them. And that brings up a great question for us. What are you willing to change? What are you willing to do differently if it meant that you could have a stronger testimony for the Lord? That's a big question. Because as Christians, we are so, we're so strong in our personal liberty, right? I am free to live like this. I'm free to make this decision. It doesn't violate the law of God. And so I'm free to do this thing. But sometimes God calls us to lay aside things even personal liberties, even things that there's no, there's no problem with in order to have a greater testimony and to maybe reach somebody with the gospel. And, and sometimes we don't really see that. We don't think that way. Sometimes, you know, if, if we feel like God maybe leads us to maybe not do something or, or maybe, to, uh, to maybe to do something uh, or, or not do something and we feel like God is like messing around with us, maybe all it is is he's simply trying to humble you uh, so that you might maybe take a step in a different direction that would maybe affect somebody in a unique way. That takes a lot of spiritual discernment. It takes a lot of prayer. It takes a lot of understanding the spirit of God and, and what it is that he may be trying to uh, teach us. But Paul here did this because he was hopeful of following along with the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and that it then would make a difference that he could then continue to minister to them in a special way. However, 
his decision to do this was not enough to stop the rumors and lies that were coming. And so this is where we come to point number two today. We see the violence. (laughs) So we have the vow and then there is the violence. Now I told you we're going to move along quickly. So from this point on, I'm going to roll. Okay, so stay with me. We're going to move quickly through this passage here. But we get to verse number 27 of chapter 40. And in verse uh, chapter number, uh, uh, verse number 27, sorry, of chapter 21, it says when the days, uh, the seven days were almost ended. So he had to purify himself of these guys for seven days, for a whole week. It says when they were ended here in verse 27, uh, that the Jews, which were of Asia, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up all the people and laid hands on him. So in those verses there, what they do is they stir him up. And it says that they were Jews from Asia, Asia Minor. So that probably meant Ephesus. Now in Ephesus, there was a riot. In Ephesus, there was an attack against him. Uh, remember the seven sons of Sceva? Remember those guys? Dirtbags. Remember those guys? We talked with them for a while. Maybe one of them was there. I don't know. But these Jews from Ephesus, they saw Paul in verse 28 and 29. It tells us that they saw him and they made a false assumption about him. You know what they said? They said, he took a Gentile into the temple. (gasps) That's the worst. (laughs) On the temple door going in, there were signs that said, if you are not a Jew, if you're not a Gentile, you will be punished uh, punished by death just by going into the temple, unless you were a converted Jew and unless you were a Jew yourself. And so no Gentiles in there. So they say, oh, we saw Paul and they saw him walking, maybe with Secundus from Thessalonica, and maybe they saw him walking in the city. And so they assumed that he took him to the temple, right? I mean, it's his hometown. Let me show you around. I'll sneak into the temple. No big deal. No, I don't know what they thought, but they said, you know, they saw him and they said, he took a Gentile and they begin to stir the people up. Look at verse 28. It says, they cried out, men of Israel, help. (laughs) So, So they're calling the people. Now this was a time of of a sacrifice. It was the Pentecost, right? They estimate close to 2 million people were there in Jerusalem during this feast. So there was no shortage of people around. And so they said, men of Israel, this guy violated the temple. And so they get everyone stirred up, verse 30 and 31. It says that they took him out of the court because they could not kill him in the court. And that was, that was the truth. You cannot kill a person in the court of the temple. It'd be like, Killing somebody in church, you know, you can't do that. Nor should you do it outside of a church. Just so to clarify for everybody, no killing. But uh, they, they, they're going to kill him for violating this. So they take him out of the, out of the thing. They close up the doors to the court, uh, to, the, to the courtyard there. And, uh, and they begin to beat him, the Bible tells us. They begin to beat him in preparation for killing him. Well, then word gets out to the commanding Roman centurion. Now remember, Israel is under occupation. You got to remember this. They're under occupation by Rome. And uh, so word gets back to the, the main captain there, and they're like, there's a riot again. He said, let me guess, where? At the temple. Yeah, of course, there's another riot. So he comes out with a bunch of soldiers, uh, and they go down to uh, the temple. Now, I've got a drawing here of what it would have looked like uh, in that day. So if you see over on the left here was the temple court. Uh, there's the Holy of Holies and the temple itself, the inner courtyard, the outer courtyard. Uh, they had all these different areas, the porches, they called them. And then if you see down... Uh, uh, you, you would go down from there and then you go back up to the fortress of Antonia. It was a fortress that was built uh, uh, in honor of Anthony uh, many, many years before, but it held about 600 uh, Roman soldiers in that place. And it was strategic there at the top high point of the city and strategic. It was close to the temple where there's always seemed to be a lot of turmoil. They estimate it was about 600 feet was all that it was, the difference between uh, where the fortress and the temple court was. And so there's this major issue. They come, the soldiers come down from the fortress of Antonia. They come down there. And then in verses uh, 32 through 36, what they do is they they ask the group, like, what is happening? And we see something similar in verse number 
uh, 34, it says they cried one to another. Nobody really knew what was going on. Everybody's yelling and shouting, and the soldiers couldn't figure out what it was. So they moved Paul, but the crowd is so violent and so strong, they had to pick up Paul and carry him, it says. And they carried him. They bound him, first of all. It says with two chains, which they probably bound his hands and his feet, which fulfilled the prophecy of Agabus. They'd be bound by the Gentiles. So they bind him up, they pick him up, and they start to carry him, and they begin to carry him up those steps to the fortress of Antonia. And then we come to verse number 37. And it says, And Paul was led, uh, was to be led into the castle. He said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee, who said, Canst thou speak Greek? <laughs> That's what he says. So he speaks to him in Greek, and he says, Whoa, you can speak Greek. And then in verse 39, he says something really funny. He says, uh, or sorry, in verse 38, he says, Aren't you an Egyptian? He said, I thought you were that Egyptian that led 4,000 people, 4,000 murdering men out into the wilderness after an insurrection. Now, that's a really interesting story. You search it up yourself. Search up Egyptian, 4,000 men, murderers in the Bible, Acts chapter 21. Uh, look that up. And it's a really interesting story. So this guy was under the assumption he was an insurrectionist, this Egyptian. Well, Paul says, no, I, I am not that guy. He says, I'm a man. I'm a Jew of Tarshish, a city in Cilicia. And he tells him about it. And then in verse number 40, he convinces him to let him speak to the crowd, which is amazing to me. Paul says, I want to speak to these guys who had just beaten him. I mean, he was, I'm sure he was bloodied. He was beaten. Jews were not exactly like just smacking you in the face. I mean, they were beating him. And these guys rescued him. They saved him from being beaten to death. And yet he says, I would like to speak to the crowd if possible. So in verse number 40, it tells us, and when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and he beckoned with the hand to the people and there was made a great silence and he spake unto them in the Hebrew tongue. How was it that Paul was able to speak to this crowd that was trying to take his life? You know, I thought about that a little bit this week. I spent some time. How, I mean, if it was me, I would have been like, Psh. I'm good in the fortress of Antonia now, you know? Ha! <laughs> you tried to kill me, but I didn't. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for rescuing me. Why was it that he turned around and began to speak to them? I don't know. I mean, he's in Israel, isn't he? He's in Jerusalem. He's in the place where Jesus, as he hung on a cross, said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That passion, that desire was part of his life. And he says, I would like to address this crowd. I would like to speak to them. And that's where we come to point three, where we see the voice. There was a vow, there was violence, but now there is the voice. In verse number one of Acts 22, he says, Men, brethren, and fathers, look how respectful he is. He's so respectful. Hear ye my defense, which I make now unto you. And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept the more silence, and he saith. Now, I'm not going to take all the time, but I want you to think back to that fortress. So I want you to put yourself there. We're back in this fortress, and we're, uh, uh, if you remember what it was uh, right there, we got the temple court, we got the fortress. And then if you click one more over there, Lex, you'll see that this is where Paul then would have addressed the crowd. He turns and he stands on these stairs and I'm sure he was hurting. I'm sure he was, did not look all that great, but here he begins to speak to them in the Hebrew tongue. And it says there in verse one, hear ye my defense. That's the word apologia, where we get apologetics from. He says, let me explain to you uh, what is going on. And he had two purposes in addressing the crowd. I'll give you just real briefly. First of all, he wanted them to hear that he was loyal to his Jewish heritage. 
He saw himself uh, standing uh, in relation with it, though he confessed Jesus as the Messiah, but he says, I am still a Jew. Like, I am still connected to my Jewish heritage. Secondly, he wanted them to know the facts about his own conversion. Here's what he wanted them to know. I want you to know that my conversion, uh, that my ministry is not something that I just made up. It is given to me by God himself. God has called me to do this. And, and this is not something that I'm just, I'm just making up. This is what I am supposed to do. I'll give you a quick rundown of what he began to say. In verses 3 through 5, uh, he begins to describe his upbringing and his zeal for the law. And he talks about how he was zealous uh, for the law, even uh, to the persecution of those that came in faith. And then in verses 6 through 13, uh, he tells them about his Damascus Road conversion. And he shares with them how Christ came to him and how Ananias then came after him. He received his sight. So he tells that whole story all over again. And then verses 14 through 21, he explains to them God's calling on his life to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the far reaches of the world. He says, it is God who has called me. It is God who has led me. And it is this, this powerful, powerful message. I'd encourage you to go back and uh, maybe read it this week. But he tells them about how God had called him. And just like, just like any minister or anyone who's given their life to Christ should have a story, should have a, a confirmation of God's calling on their life, Paul shares with them that God has called me to take the gospel, to take the word to the Gentiles. But as soon as he said Gentiles, as soon as he said, God is called me, God wants the Gentiles to hear, the crowd erupts. And this is where we see point number four, the violence again. <laughs> Very creative. <laughs> the violence again. The violence again. Look at verse 22. And they gave him audience unto this word. So unto this word where he says Gentiles. <laughs> okay, in verse number, uh, verse number 21, I'll treat. He said, and uh, um, he said, he's talking about God said, depart for I will send thee far thence unto the Gentiles. And they gave him audience unto this word. So they listened to this point and then lifted up their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth for it is not fit that he should live. You ever have somebody tell you, you don't deserve to live because of your opinion. <laughs> Whoa. Well, we're starting to hear some of that these days. People are getting a little bit violent with their approach on Twitter where they can hide, right? But it's true. <laughs> and they said, this guy does not deserve to live because of what he's saying here. And they cried out and they cast off their clothes and they threw dust into the air. What a visual picture, right? Now that, that meant their outer garments. Just so you know, it wasn't a bunch of naked people in the streets throwing dirt in the air. They had their, but they threw off their outer cloaks as a show of like uh, despair and frustration. And then they threw dirt in the air. I mean, this is like, this is a big deal. In the Jewish culture, this is like, whoa, man, all the clouds of dirt and everybody's covered in dirt. They're sweating, they're angry, there's blood. I mean, everybody's, just imagine the situation. Thousands of people gathered there and they're so frustrated. So why was their reaction so? strong. Here's why. Because of the implications of what Paul had just said. See, the Jews were to be a light to the Gentiles. They knew that from the time that God established them and gave them uh, his law and, 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 and uh, showed them what he wanted them to do. God has said, you as the Jewish people are to be a light to the Gentiles. You remember that? Way back in the Old Testament. He said, you are, to, you are to be showing them the one true God. And he said, if any one of the pagan nations, anyone around came to the Jews and said, we want to know about the one true God and be converted, they were to be converted. And in fact, the Jews welcomed that. And there's many, many uh, instances of that happening all throughout scripture where people came and we want to know about the one true God. And so they, they converted to Judaism and that's what they were supposed to do. But at this point, the Jews, and I don't know if it was because of the occupation of the Romans. I mean, there's probably a lot of factors there, but they had become known more about their separate than they were about accepting people. And so they were very much resistant. They were stark separatists. But here now we have Paul suggesting that the good news of the Messiah changes that mindset. 
Because here's what he was doing. Paul was suggesting to them that the Gentiles could be saved and that the Gentiles could be made right with God without subscribing to the law. In essence, Paul is claiming here divine approval from God that the Jews and the Gentiles are equal. That's what he's saying. And to them, that is like no way. In a separatist, racist, literally is what they were, a racist culture, they were like, no way is that acceptable. And so that collided head on with the blindness and the pride and the prejudices that the Jews had. That's why they responded in such a strong and explosive way. Because Paul's saying, no, no, God has called me and the Gentiles are to hear the word even before you, he's saying. And to them, that was just unacceptable. And they just exploded in verse 24 and verse number 25 then because the crowd was throwing dirt and ripping off. They're like, we're going to kill this guy. Uh, the, the soldiers come back down and it says the chief captain commanded him to be brought in the castle. And then he bade that he should be examined by scourging. Man, how Roman is this, right? This guy just got beat almost to death. Bring him inside. Let's beat him. Let's find out if he knows anything, right? This is how they operated. They so bring him in and let's scourge Paul. Let's beat him. Uh, so, and it, why? So that we might know why they cried against him. <laughs> let's beat him so we know why he's getting beat up. <laughs> this makes a lot of sense, right? And they bound him with thongs. And Paul said unto the centurion that stood by, is it lawful for you? This is interesting. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? So this is interesting. The captain says, get him inside. Tie him up and beat him. I want to know what the problem is. I want to know why they're attacking him. And then Paul, on his way, he's all tied up. He's getting ready to be beat. They believe he was probably stretched out. They're going to beat him with the, the scourge, which was a terrible, terrible beating. He says, hey, I heard that if you're a Roman, you're not allowed to be beaten unless you've had a fair trial. Maybe the centurion there said, yeah, that's true. <laughs> he said, wait a minute. You said we? <laughs> is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? He says, well, hey, I just want you to know. I am a Roman. <laughs> well, then the centurion goes and gets the captain. He says, you need to take it easy on this guy. He is one of us. He's a Roman citizen. Verse 27, the chief captain said, came and said unto him, tell me, art thou Roman? He said, yay. Not like yay, but like yay. Yes, okay. Yes. <laughs> and the chief captain answered, with a great sum, I obtained this freedom. Paul said, I was freeborn. You have to remember only about 5% of the Roman Empire were actual citizens of the Roman Empire. Almost everyone else was in subjection to that, trying to get it. So this centurion said, I paid for my right to be a Roman citizen. He says, I was born free. That was even in the statuses of Roman citizenship, that was even higher than to be born into that situation. And so he says, yeah, well, I was born uh, free. Then straightway they departed from him. So they're like, they left him, which should have been examined him. Everybody just walked away. Well, I'm not beating this guy. Are you beating him? No, I'm not beating him. I'm walking away. And the chief captain also was afraid after he heard was he was a Roman because he had bound him. It brought fear. To, to, uh, to abuse a Roman citizen brought, without cause brought with itself a great deal of punishment and judgment upon them. Well, this captain, you can imagine, was a little upset. <laughs> Well, you know, my whole day's been ruined. I had a whole thing planned out, and I had to go break up a mob. They're beating one of us. They're beating one of my Roman citizens. You know, I'm sure that he had a lot of investigations to do. And so what we see the captain doing then, putting together a plan in verse number 30. He says, on the morrow, so the next day, because he would have known the certainty wherefore he was accused of the Jews, he loosed him from his bands, and he commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear, and he brought Paul down, and he set him before them. And so after this day and everything that happens here, this Roman uh, centurion sets up a showdown between Paul and now the chief priests and uh, the council of the Jews. And we are going to cover that next Sunday. So you have to come back next week, okay, as we see 
uh, what Paul says to the, that Jewish council there. And you have to come back. You can't miss it. You can't watch online. You got to come back in person to hear uh, what Paul says to that, those council. Don't read ahead. I see what you're doing, Nerissa. No reading ahead. Uh, you got you to gotta stay with me here. Even if it's in your Bible reading, just skip right over it. Next week, we'll start uh, in chapter number 23. But what about today, right? I told you we covered a lot of ground. We just covered a ton of ground. And that's not normally what we do. And thank you for sticking with me. I liked how I didn't even see some of your eyes because you're taking notes the whole time. You just had your head down uh, trying to follow with me. That's a lot of ground that we covered. So what about today? What do we do with the, what we've learned? What do we take home? Because it's important for us to take something home with us when we come to church and, and learn. It's great to know all these facts, but there are some good applications. So I want to share just four quick thoughts, very, very quick thoughts with you as we close today. Okay, first of all, your faith can move others to faith. Now, we kind of touched on it a moment ago, uh, earlier on in the message, but your faith can move others to faith. Paul's faith leading him to Jerusalem, led others to follow along with him as well. I think that's a powerful thing that we need not miss out of this passage. Paul's faith made a difference. And then secondly, humility is key to the Christian life. Humility is key to the Christian life. It was humility that gave Paul a chance to defend his honor. It was humility that gave Paul the grace to listen to those leaders of that church and to follow what they were saying. It was uh, humility and grace that can help mend broken relationships in your life. Humility is so key in, in, in the life of a Christian, and we've got to remember that. Listen, we need to humble ourselves before God, and he will lift you up. And Paul is a great example of that. He had true humility. I mean, he was the apostle Paul, AP. He could have, I mean, he'd done so many amazing things, but yet he humbled himself in those situations. The third thing that we can learn is don't try to add anything to your salvation. Don't try to add anything to your salvation. We didn't dig into it too much, the confusion and the compromise in the Jerusalem church, because that's really what it was. It was compromise in the Jerusalem church. But yet what we were seeing them doing was continuing to add the law to salvation by faith through grace in Jesus Christ. They believed in the Messiah had come, but they also believed that it was necessary for them to continue the law along with that salvation that Jesus had given. They added rituals. They added in all these things to it. And listen, church, we must be aware of that because even in our modern Christian society, there are things that people add into their salvation to make it look as if you're a Christian. And they add these things in. If you look a certain way, you act a certain way, uh, then therefore you are a Christian. And that's not, the, that's not the truth, okay? We grow at different paces. We must not be like the Jews, though, that on the outside look perfect, but inward were a mess. Jesus said, you look like white and sepulchers, meaning you look like a freshly painted tomb, <laughs> but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Jesus said that to the Jews himself. And we must be aware today, and that's what I believe had creeped back into the church, is that they still had this outward appearance. Yes, we believe Jesus is the Messiah, but we keep the law, and we do all of these things along with it. And, and really, it was for nothing, because Jesus had, had fulfilled the law. Jesus had bre uh, broken that, uh, uh, the, the, the veil was torn in two. You know, he had opened the door between mankind and the holiness of God, and through his spirit had come. We're 25 years after this. 25 years later, they were still in bondage to this. And we must be aware that we don't ever as Christians uh, judge uh, another person or add things into our life or make aspects of personal sanctification a requirement for a person to be a good Christian, right? Some people, man, so, some Christians struggle so much with this and they put so much pressure on themselves because they're trying to fit somebody else's mold of what a true Christian is. 
Listen, if you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've accepted him by faith, and you know him, and you, to the very best of your ability, are walking by the word of God. Now, we should learn from others. There's different varying levels of sanctification, and, and as people grow and develop, you make decisions that, I mean, so many of you have made decisions in your life after a few years of being saved. You're like, oh, man, I probably shouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> Maybe I should change the way I think in this area. Maybe I should change the way I act in this area. And it's because God has revealed that to you. But none of us should ever live uh, under a man-made standard of an idea of, of what things should look like. It should only come from the Word of God. It should come through the Bible. It should come through a conscience and a Holy Spirit that is right with God. The fourth thing I want you to see is that the will of God is worth living for. I know that's probably an improper sentence to end it with the word for. I can never remember, you know, my grammar. But it gets the point across. <laughs> the will of God is worth living for. Paul shows us that. Paul reveals to us uh, in his defense to the crowd that his calling was of God. And even though his calling did not fit in with the good Jew idea or the, even the Jerusalem church idea, even though his calling was to the Gentiles, he would still be faithful to it because it was God who had called him to it. It was God who had called him to it. And that's what we've got to remember, church family. Listen, the will of God is worth following, even if it makes you uncomfortable a little bit. Even if it takes you out of, uh, puts you in a place that maybe you never thought you would be, following the will of God is worth it. You know, my heart for us this morning is that we as a church would see in Paul a man who is determined to follow the will of God with humility, with grace, and with a passion to share the grace of God, no matter his circumstances or the danger that he found himself in. And for us today, that's the big thought. That's the big idea for us this morning is that in our hearts, are we people who walk in humility? Are we people who walk in grace and with a passion that we would be willing to lay aside even our own personal rights in order to minister to somebody else? Our own personal comforts, maybe something that we could buy for ourselves if it meant that we could be a blessing to someone else. It's the idea of humility of, of listen, I'm here to serve others. That's what Paul said. He said, I, I, I want to become, become all things to all people so I can share with them the gospel. And that's the heart of the matter there. And it is this knowledge, this idea, that if we have this heart of love and of grace, of humility, it's this idea that helps us to live for God in our society today. Because, man, our society today is not that great, is it? It's not that easy to live for God. You know what it's like. Many of you know what it's like to try to have a stand for God in your workplace. You know, it's the, the, I won't say impossibility of it, but you know the challenges that surround it. But yet we are still called to follow the Lord. And so if God leads us to do something, we need his grace, we need his strength, but we also need to be willing to humble ourselves and say, Lord, if this is what you want me to do, I'm going to do it, whatever it may be. Man, Paul gives us such a great example, doesn't he? That all through this craziness, getting there, the, the, the great news to the church, uh, the, the, the violence that comes as a result, the false accusations, then, uh, uh, th then the other issues that he has, being able to share his testimony and everything, all of it, we see him just constantly humbled. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but when they were attacking him and beating him, he didn't say a word. He didn't say, no, I didn't bring a Gentile into the, is that means he's complicit that he did it? No. He didn't defend himself at all. He, he knew, right? He knew God had told him, you will go through difficulty. And so he was being beaten to death and he was trusting God in that. Man, that's powerful. So powerful. Because he knew God's will. He would not let anything deter him from it. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.